Hi, and welcome to the Beyond Darkness podcast, created by Nana Hanfgan Jensen and Nadia Mattioli, a knowledge-sharing platform for artistic practice and artistic research. For more information about our own work, visit bdmatterinmotion.com. And for your questions and comments, you can contact us at bd.matterinmotion at gmail.com. Today I am at the Kammerspiele in Munich in Germany, together with Anouk van Dijk, who is a choreographer and the founder of Counter Technique. We hope you enjoy this episode. said that unfortunately she cannot join that was the actual plan but so <laughs> it's you just representing you and exactly and so Nana. but the questions come from both me and Nana just so that you're aware mm -hmm. so I think it's nice to start from you immediately so um, maybe you can tell me and the listeners a bit about you, who you are, what you've done um, so far, and what your artistic practice is about? Uh, well, my name is Anouk van Dijk. Uh, I was born in the Netherlands, and so I'm Dutch, but I'm also permanent resident in Australia. I'm currently living in Melbourne, Australia. And for the past eight years, I was the artistic director of a dance company, Chunky Move, based in Melbourne. And before that, um, I had I ran my own company in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, Anouk van Dijk DC. It was called uh, for a bit over a decade, and we started as a small, um, teeny cell, um, finding some project funding here and there, and then we grew and grew and grew, and in the end, we were funded for eight years. Um, by the Dutch government, we had our own building, yeah, two studios, offices, um, yeah, so that's my choreographic practice and in those homes of those two companies I developed a movement methodology called counter technique. Um, that started from the curiosity how to dance more efficiently. So it's not so tiring or painful because I love dancing, but the pain and the fatigue is so hard with dancing. And I didn't find any training methodology that was really ticking all the boxes. Mm. So then I started to, to dig deeper. And so I've been practicing. I've developed, so I've developed counter technique over the last 20 years and a bit. Um, and uh, yeah works for me uh, um, there's more people who teach it there's 31 teachers worldwide who teach it right now um, in schools universities dance companies there's other choreographers who work with methodology um, dancers who work with the methodology in other styles of movement and then going further back I don't know what's there to tell oh, yeah I love dancing <laughs> I've been dancing professionally for, since I was 19 mm. um, and then I restarted again dancing when I was 44 <laughs> uh, 
love being on stage. I haven't been on stage for some years because I was too busy with other things, but uh, dancing is a very challenging intellectual art form and it's an instinctual beast at the same time and that makes it really interesting. <laughs> well, yeah. It's interesting that you talk about the development of your own methodology um, or training method or uh, counter technique, right? Um, because Nana and I, we are also in the process of developing our own methodology and we are at the very beginning stages. And of course, um, you know how that feels. There is so much to discover and... Um, There are, of course, particularities that make you want to investigate something um, and there's a very strong drive as to why. But of course, you know that this is a very long process, right? I mean, for me at least, um, we know that um, no matter what we, we have figured out or what we believe that we have figured out, it's not static or it's not finished and it might never finish and I was just wondering if you have this this same feeling like okay this this technique exists for so long but there's new knowledge that you discover or yeah um well I, I mean I personally see that there's I have my choreographic practice mm -hmm. so there's a particular way how I generate creativity in people um, and there is a particular view that I have on the purpose of dance as an art form of how I see it can deliver something for an audience. So I see that as my choreographic practice. And then the camera technique is almost like the supporting uh, methodology that trains the awareness and physical choice making that then allows the dancer to be very responsive in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. However, counter technique can also be used for other creative processes, not necessarily my own. So I think when I developed counter technique, it went, it was back to back to developing an artistic practice, yeah. movement or, or, or yeah, choreographic practice. And a choreographic practice was very much, uh, I was very much, uh, There were two things in the beginning of my career that really triggered why I wanted to make. One thing was that I felt that the dancers very often didn't look, did not look very authentic on stage. And then if they would look very authentic on stage, they didn't dance. Mm. So how can you have people look authentic <laughs> on stage while they're dancing? And that yeah. was the big problem, that there was no practice developed really that allowed dancers to have that kind of agency on stage. Mm. So that was one thing that really, uh, at the start of my career, really triggered me. And the other thing is, um, I, I had some people close around me who thought dance is just boring and bullshit. So how could I make something that they would find interesting? Yeah. So I've always made dance for, n n not for the insiders, always, mm. from the start. Um, And I would say a third trigger was I was shifting from performing as a dancer full time to more and more making and then starting to dance in my own work and mm -hmm. eventually stepping outside of my work. And in that process, I have always experienced a deep confusion about 
How can you look really transparent and honest as a performer on stage? How do you do that? And how as a performer could you actually control that? Because if the performer doesn't have an inner drive where they're performing, and non-text performers, um, it's so easy that it will look artificial mm -hmm. or forced or like no, no inner drive, no necessity why it's there. So that was like a big question mark I had and I would sometimes see dancers that looked so authentic and real on stage and I would go like, wow, how are they doing that? <laughs> yes. you know, why is this so amazing? Yeah. Or performers in general. I remember seeing work from Christoph Martale, mm. um, his work Pirolinaire. I will never forget it. I was, already, I was already working on camera technique at that time, but his performance looked just incredible on yeah. stage. And they were like, they were not dancers, but they... They danced time. They had a sense of how to divide time and how to know when it's right, mm. you know. And I came from more the Dutch lineage where control and willpower was very much at the heart of how people created work. And that's also how I was trained and mm. how I was formed as a performer. Um, so at some point I radically stepped out of that because I felt that was just not, that didn't have my interest um, and I remember in one of my very, very early works that I did, it was Nothing Hurts, that I created actually with Falk. Mm -hmm. It was my second full evening work, I think, that I created. And I remember we were in rehearsal, me and my colleague dancer, and I'd created a scene called the Test Crash Dummies. And <laughs> we had studied uh test crash dummies, um, puppets, how they would behave on impact. And we looked at videos in slow motion and then we created kind of a movement language yeah. that was based on that. And I remember we were performing, we were in sort of final rehearsals before we went to the theater and we were rehearsing this scene and I was in the scene myself and I thought as the scene was going on, me and my partner that we were dancing, these dummies and then an actress had a text and it was music by uh, the DJ. Uh, and I remember being in rehearsal thinking, this is bullshit, <laughs> this is nothing, this is empty, it has no meaning, what am I doing, this yeah. is ridiculous. Then afterwards, people were in tears. <laughs> I mean, not from that I said <laughs> After we ran, people said, that's so moving. It was yeah. such a moving scene, it was so moving. How can that be moving? <laughs> I, me, as the performer, I didn't feel anything. Wow. And I was creating my own work. So when you create your own work, it's very difficult to be in your own work and be on the outside yeah. at the yes, same time. Of course, it's really, yeah. really hard. So I had a rehearsal director with me in that time and she also said that it was really moving and it was really special. And that was such a trigger because I realized that my experience as a performer mm. had nothing to do with the experience of the work. Oh, yeah nothing and if not that actually my feelings as a performer can be deeply in the way mm. of an audience to connect to their feelings okay so that was the starting point of starting to work in a, a what i call task-based yeah way mm. because my experience over the years was that the most fruitful and authentic presence of people on stage i can get through simple tasks that allows performers to be really engaged in what they're doing and they're not they're not worrying about what is this looking like what i'm trying what do i try to communicate here mm. um do people get it yeah. they don't have to worry about that at all 
um, yeah, so then I start to really research that. And then I start to also research this. If we do that in rehearsal and on stage, what would that mean for how we train? Mm. Could we operate in a similar way when we're training? Yeah. Okay, well. Um, that gives me a lot of... Um, <laughs> of thoughts myself because I, I related to how I work and or have been working and there was always this question of truth for me as well how do you perform by using the word performing you actually imply that it's already not truthful at least for most people that's how how this at least the words that's what they mean and then is it a paradox? Is it possible? How is it possible? I think these are very important questions and um, to have found a way or, yeah, that, that it works for you and for others. Uh, I think this is incredible. I mean, I mean, the funny thing is, of course, that through starting to research this more, like my tasks are becoming more and more basic. They're mm -hmm. almost like that it's so basic that you're like, really? Is that what we should be doing? But the strange thing is like, it can generate these like really intense lived experiences from people on stage. Mm. And that's what I'm after. Yeah. I'm not after that people do tasks and look dry and boring. I'm looking for the, ex the lived experience um, uh, because that's what performers can share. Uh, sometimes performers might be subject to, to delivering a concept, right? So a maker has the idea of a, sort of a conceptual, conceptual idea, and there's people who deliver the mm -hmm. concept, uh, which is more of a cerebral exercise for the audience, that they, um, they kind of get the concept and they kind of see the concept being uh, manifested mm -hmm. or, or come to the fore. Uh, and there's amazing work being made that way. Yeah. But there's, it can also, the danger of that way of working is that it's self-indulgent. Because it shows the maker says I'm really smart, yes. And you figure out how smart I am, and then it's no longer about the work and the audience. Mm. It's really about the 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 the, rap, the the intellect of the maker. So that can be a choice. Yeah. Sometimes people do that to provoke, or um. But I I personally as a maker I've never been attracted to that. I've been attracted more into offering an audience a way to experience performers that normally do, they don't have access to to experiencing people that yes. way yeah, yeah. Um, in their vulnerability and yeah. in their conviction and their perseverance and their defeat and yes. their um, making fun of it and that is yeah. I find beautiful if a performer has that kind of layered uh, connection to an audience mm. And then I think dance can have a power that speaks for itself, but it's not about dance. Mm -hmm. You see what I yes. mean? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you ended now with the word dance, but I would go a step before. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to ask you what is dance, but I'm going to ask you what is movement? <laughs> movement for me is potential mm -hmm. is the potential for discovery curiosity <laughs> change yeah. um agency mm -hmm. self-agency response um reflection 
creativity that's for me movement so movement is movement of the body but it's also movement of the mind it's yeah. movement of the awareness it's movement of energy it's movement of timing sense of time yeah so movement is is the start of everything yeah it's the start of everything all the cells in our bodies you mm -hmm. know are in movement and breathe in and out and the air is in movement and the particles are in movement and if you look at the cellular level everything is in movement so in that sense movement is everywhere yeah um however to be open for the potential of that is something you have to work on hmm. because the canon of our society doesn't really value movement yeah. movement as a life form it doesn't really value that yeah Unfortunately, <laughs> um, but I think that's also maybe one of the reasons um, I am interested in movement. I think that there's there's uh, the creativity, but there is also yeah, this it's so layered the potential again, as you said, of movement, and of course, then dance can come out of it. But there's all of that other stuff that I feel infuses for me also than dance yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, maybe to bring it a bit back to um, the practice that we're doing uh, Nana and I which mm -hmm. is um, a practice that is set in darkness and we have already talked to you about how you have been working with darkness at least in the past and um, we were just wondering how um, how that came about, what were your reasons for that and what were the discoveries you made or yeah, the challenges that you faced because of course it's a very complex <laughs> space to be in, a dark yeah. space, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I worked in, um, in one work in particular, Stahl, I worked with darkness. Um, the reason why I worked in darkness in that work was that I wanted to fully dissolve the barrier between the audience and the performer. That's mm -hmm. the reason why I wanted to do it. And I created that work in 2004 <laughs> um, because I had to admit to myself I was afraid of the audience. Mm -hmm. I, was, I thought it was very scary, you know, the kind of judgmental gaze of the audience and the... I couldn't control how they would perceive or feel. Mm -hmm. I would see my own work and I thought it was great and then people thought it was crap or I saw my work and it was I thought it was crap and then people thought it was great and one big mystery and then I remember also in that time you know you start to write these grand proposals and in grand proposals they would ask you in that time they started to ask um, artists more and more about what is the how do you see what's your audience what's your target mm -hmm. audience uh, um, how does your work relate to an audience? How do you see how you can expand an audience? And I had no idea how to answer those questions in that time. I didn't even understand them and why it was relevant. Mm. So then I decided to make a work. Okay, let's me, let me make a work on the proximity to the audience. Let's just go into it and yeah. figure out how close can we get to the audience where there is a reciprocal sense of trust. Is that possible? Yeah. Can we get this close and how close can we get and when does it become uncomfortable and how can we behave and perform so it's not uncomfortable. Mm. So I, from the get-go I knew I wanted to make a piece about 
mutual respect <laughs> and um and, and not to provoke the audience because it was also in a time that there were a lot of shows provoking like I saw shows where people were peeing in the middle of the audience mm -hmm. and running around naked across the seats of the audience great works by the way but I was like okay it's already been done so why would I go there can I do something where we don't provoke the audience mm. um, and it became a, a, somehow a work that people needed to see because we've performed that work for seven, eight years all over the world. So there was some kind of need for that work. Um, and and in, as part of the work, there were two things that I decided to put in. One was, okay, at some point, some person needs to strip all the way naked to be even closer, so the skin yeah. is closer. And then in one of the runs in the studio, the dancer who did that, he put his dance clothes on my lap and then stepped into the small performance arena that we had and started to perform and I felt that was way too close and I knew this dancer already for years mm -hmm. and afterwards I said to him like listen this is this is too private you <laughs> put your heat your body heat on my lap and it's already very intimate for me and I know you really well let alone for an audience who has no has no you know, yeah. personal relationship to you so that was sort of like we were testing what are the thresholds of intimacy mm of vulnerability and intimacy. So that was one, and then so let's not do that. But then we looked into, okay, what are other ways how we can get really close to an audience without being too threatening? So yeah. one of the things was we switched up the lights. Mm -hmm. And we looked into, okay, what is it? Is it body heat, proximity, touch, words? And then we realized actually words were the, the nicest way to become close to people without them feeling threatened. Because the moment you touch them, they can feel threatened mm -hmm. in the dark unless it's been guided really, really well. And I was making a show that needed to seat at least 75 people. Yeah. At least. So that was already the, the restraint. Yeah. So that's a lot of audience management. How do you do that in the dark? Yeah. And so anyway, so in that work, we, we worked to a place where the lights would go off. Uh, the show had two parts. One part, the audience was seated surrounding on four sides, a very small dance floor. And then as the performance continued, the chairs were taken away from the audience and the audience would find themselves on a large dance floor. An audience is by nature very territorial. And so if you take their chair away, they'll stay on that spot. We found out after doing multiple research because people don't know what to do or where to go. Yeah. So we expected the audiences all to go to the walls to kind of have protection of the walls mm -hmm. behind them. They didn't do it. They would just stay put. <laughs> it was the most bizarre thing we experienced. Anyway, so then through light changes, we would move the audience around to different parts of the performance space because some of the scenes would take along walls. Some of them would take in between different areas in the audience. Sometimes it was more central. And then at some point, we just switched off all the lights. Mm. Um, and then we added performers. So the audience thought there were four performers, but there were actually a lot of plants, a lot of extra performers that only for that moment were performing. Yeah. So the audience got really disoriented because they had no idea anymore if maybe the, the whole audience were also performers <laughs> yes. and they were the only one visiting. <laughs> so I was playing with this whole expectation of what's the audience and what isn't. And that was that was a great experience. It was really beautiful to do, and we it was a lot of work to find the right mm -hmm. way how to make the audience feel safe but disoriented enough that they would get curious. Mm -hmm. So I think that was that was the biggest one for for this. And then and then of course you run into the challenge of you perform in a theater. This was a touring show, 
and the exit signs are very bright yes and you don't get the right experience that you want the audience to get then you have to fight to get gels in front of the lights sometimes yes. it was possible sometimes it was not so that was very challenging and then i created a work where actually i solved it in a very simple way darkness i just had the audience close their eyes at the end of the show <laughs> and that was a show where um one of the dancers was performing a text and the text was talking about leaving the space the work was called borrowed landscapes which is a japanese concept where um, a garden in in japanese culture can often they're very small but they design the trees and the plants in the garden in such a way that the trees in the background of other garden gardens become part mm. of of that world wow. so they craft illusions in a beautiful way so Bart landscapes was a little bit about crafting these spaces these Im imaginary spaces mm. so at the end of the show this one performer is inviting the audience to close their eyes and he's basically taking the audience out of the theater into the streets into the trees and basically taking the audience into the universe that's mm -hmm. what he kind of did and there was a big wall standing behind him six meter high and four meters wide and then with the very last word he said he would take a step forward and the entire wall would crash down and would give this gust of wind yes. at the end of the text uh -huh. and and people who had their closed eyes closed in the audience they had an incredible experience because they were in this roller coaster and then this wind mm -hmm. came in and it was totally unplugged you know it was a very simple idea and then there were also audience members who had their eyes open. They had a completely different experience yeah. because they saw the wall fall, you know. So I had this whole other relationship to the reality of the show. Yeah. So that was a bit of a conceptual uh, work. And then I became more interested. So then I kind of was kind of done. I'd gone through my conceptual phase. And then um, then I became actually interested in the, in the magic of theater and the illusion, the traditional illusion of theater that you can make it black space and things um, you know <laughs> come out of the dark yes. because there is something very soothing for an audience and very safe for an audience that the lights go off mm -hmm. they're in their seat and they have and they have no responsibility <laughs> they don't have to do anything and the work comes alive yeah. right so that's the magic of theater there's something very beautiful about the magic of theater so i think another work where darkness was very important was called uh, was pretty recent was in 2015 it was called uh, Rule of Thirds. And I created the illusion of this endless black void mm. in a space that was actually quite small. So we w really worked on how can we create that illusion and work with uh, smoke and light and presence of people and how dark should the costumes be. And mm. the show was Rule of Thirds. It was for three performers, but there was actually a fourth one that was sometimes almost appearing mm. and so it was only for the very attentive eye that you start to realize oh my gosh there's this other thing going on and it started to form this story in your head that you realize that this fourth person was sort of a force that affected the three mm -hmm. operating on stage you know which then comes back to that in all my work the external world and how we're affected by it is yeah that's what the work is about always and it doesn't matter whether it's more conceptual or more theatrical or more storytelling or more mm. abstract it's always about that same fascination that i have um and that was beautiful because people who came to see that show and had never been to that space had no idea they thought it was a very deep space and it was very <laughs> undeep space 
So that was great actually to create that kind of illusion. And that work was actually the sort of like sort of new installment of a work that I created outdoors that took place on an immense performance space because we had this huge space. It was 40 wide and 80 to 100 meters deep. So we worked in this huge performance space. The dancers did not come closer to the audience. The, the, most of the time they were... The closest they got to the audience was 15 meters away from the front row. Oh, wow. Now, 15 meters away from the front row is barely any performance spaces deeper than that. Yes. And they would actually not come close to that for most of the work until the last 10 minutes. Mm. So the moment they cross the border, it's like an earthquake because you as an audience are so used to seeing them from afar. You, have, you get a certain idea of who they are and what they are. And then when it started to near the audience, um, and we had also sensitive microphones and the audience was wearing headsets, mm. so their breath, they could hear their breath at 10 meters, and then they started to hear their footsteps. And, and it felt like the performers, even though they were still relatively far away, felt like they were sitting on the lap of mm. the audience. So that work was really about the, the, the idea of proximity on yeah. the other end of that piece I made in 2004. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so that large work we squeezed into this small performance space with the, with the illusion that it was infinite. Okay. Yeah. So the performers were working with the same type of energy, but they didn't have the space to do it. Wow. So that became the driver of the work. And then the, the piece where the, uh, Depth of Field was, the other work was called Depth of Field, that would take place over this endless, endless distance, but that was also taking place in the middle of... Melbourne central city, the, the center of the city. So there was a lot of traffic and people walking dogs mm -hmm. and, and riding bikes and with groceries and all kinds of stuff on the periphery. So the show had a second part was that I also choreographed a part of the audience. So there was the performance of the dances and there was this other performance of the city. And I worked with the idea of deja vu. So that at some point you realize, I've seen this woman with mm. the suitcase before. <laughs> I've seen this person with the dog before. I've seen this jogger before. <laughs> so at some point for one, like literally for 15 seconds of the show, they perform together. So it all falls together. They go, they part their ways. And then from then onwards, the show is no longer the same because the audience is just looking at everything as part yes. of the performance. Yeah. So they think like, is this a performer, that a performer? <laughs> and we push it till the very end. So even in the, in the applause, there were two new performers entering <laughs> that the audience, that were staged, were part yes. of the show. <laughs> but that the audience had no clue if they were part of the show. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so anyway, so the idea of the city, of this other, the other external, yeah. I put in the dark space, and that mm. was the fourth performance. Yeah. So the city was embodied by they, yeah. by the fourth performance. Wow. Yeah, and and then I've created some more illusion shows with smoke and darkness, and then I was fed up. Then <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do it anymore. And now all my works are very light, and there's just white floors most <laughs> of the time, or bright spaces. I've worked now a couple of years in black and white works. And now I'm moving into colors. So mm. also this work is a very colorful work that we're working on. So I'm working towards more and more color yeah. in the space. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Interesting journey. Um, and uh, a, a lot of uh, very inspiring uh, ways also of talking about the performance, the performers, the audience. And 
the idea of proximity or or the illusions or the idea of perception changing perception playing with perception i think is is a great um is is something that darkness really allows you to do but of course there are other ways but that's really also something that that strikes us um as important to this to to investigate yeah mm. yeah it's like i think you have to take an audience always on a journey because i think most people in our we're manipulated so much and I think people are aware of it that we are being manipulated we're manipulated by the media we're mm-hmm. manipulated by our, our news feed we're manipulated by um, people to, to think this way or people to think that way um, we want to try to fit in in a certain consensus of how we have to be in relationship to other people so the conformity is very part of our urban life i'm talking Mm -hmm. about urban life Mm -hmm. yes so an audience is used to being manipulated and doesn't necessarily like that Mm. you know um unless you're a trained audience member trained audience member like i'm a trained audience member. so if there's a performance that you do with darkness i go like okay (laughs) let's go in and see what happens but there's a lot of people who might have trouble with with darkness or might want to go in but are expected maybe to be either treated badly or being caught off guard Mm. or something like that or being put into this kind of more uh, therapeutic place so i think there is something that an audience might have a particular expectation so so you would have to warm them up for the experience Mm. that you want to give them and it can be very small things but that can really be helpful like for instance um the, sh- the show Stau that we did although there was not so much darkness in that work except for that one particular period what we did is we asked the audience to take off their shoes and to hand us our their big coats and bags that mm. they would bring that already was an act of that was hard for people yeah to and, and we explained to the audience the reason why you need to take off your shoes is to protect the performance not mm-hmm. because other you know you might step on yeah them. of course and literally that would happen you yeah. know people might would might so we would offer socks additional socks so people could put on clean socks if they wanted to so that was like part of the performance was like getting the audience ready that they would have this other show mm-hmm. experience and and then the next thing was they would sit on chairs and you cannot imagine it anymore nowadays but they sat on chairs very very close together <laughs> Yeah, so they would sit body to body, yes. and that was it was called Stau. The idea yeah. was like, what was this? And the whole show was about this extreme proximity. But we test the chairs so that the, 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 the seat of the chairs was in such a way that they would feel comfortable. Yeah. Because we would perform it sometimes in places, and they said, Oh, we'll give you a bench. I mm-hmm. said, No, 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 mm-hmm. I need a chair because I want my audience to feel that they. They can yeah. protect themselves for so that they would have the, the experience that I wanted. Yes. So I think that's the main thing that you have to figure out. Okay, what's the experience that I want? And the only way how you can do it um, is testing it. Mm. And test with the test audience. Ask them what they experienced and uh, ask different kind of people. Yeah, yeah. Not only your friends and the you know the professional audience, but maybe an audience that might come along with someone who is more of a professional trained yeah. eye, and see how they respond. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we did some small um, 
tests with uh, audience members and um, it's super interesting what <laughs> what what they experience and 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 how that sometimes um, is not what you would expect them to experience so it's absolutely crucial when you're working with darkness yeah, yeah because you have to go from your subjective experience to yeah. kind of finding out is there a consensus mm. consensus in the subjective experience of everyone? Exactly. Yeah. And if not, is that okay? Yeah. Do I want that? Or should I heighten that more? Mm. Um, um, and sometimes it's just a matter of if they have certain instructions beforehand that yeah. can take away fear or some kind of false expectations. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned... Um, Falk, and you also mentioned the word touch and proximity and heat. And so that <laughs> leads very well to my next question, which is that uh, the sense of touch or touching um, seems to have been very prevalent in your work um, or in some of, of your work at least. And it also is again now um, a ma major subject. <laughs> In your work with um, Falk Richter at the yeah. Münchner Kammerspiele, which is called Touch, Touch actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why have you been interested in the sense of touch uh, in the past and present? And why have you actually singled it out um, as opposed to maybe working with other senses? Um, yes, so touch has always been an important subjects in my work always um, I guess well first of all I love touch <laughs> so to be touched I find a very enriching experience um, and in the dance profession itself touch is something you need to study mm. uh, so how to touch your partner in a way that they understand what you communicate through your hands um, as a teacher, also roles as a teacher that I have, how do I touch people that I uh, help to find a better use of their bodies? Um, you can communicate a lot through touch. You can also do a lot of damage through touch. Mm -hmm. So it's a very sensitive topic. Um, we are a very touchy uh, society, you know. We touch our phones yes. <laughs> all day long. Yeah. So the sensitivity of our fingers, fingertips is enormous. Um, one of my best friends he's, was born blind and of mm. course I learned a lot from talking to him about uh, the incredible skill set that uh, when you're born blind, blind you have in, sense of, in, in terms of touch. It's mm -hmm. just unbelievably sophisticated, the sense of touching the fingers. Um, yeah, so somehow touch has always been, always been really important in my work and I wanted... I, I think because in dance sometimes touch is being taken for granted in performance so you see people touch each other almost like they represent touching instead of really actually sensing mm -hmm. underneath their hands what they experience i talked about it again today in rehearsal <laughs> um um it's i think a topic that can be addressed in dance really really well and it's a topic that a lot of audience members might not be aware of how important it is in their lives uh, until now <laughs> <laughs> and since now we're in corona time and um, 
people realize how much we touch each other all yeah. the time and not being able to do that anymore also takes away our sense of uh, intimacy and trust mutual mm -hmm. trust that we can build very rapidly over touch then i find touch very interesting culturally there's cultures where touch is not okay you know or is not necessarily the way you communicate with each other or men and women don't communicate mm. with each other for that for multiple reasons could be religious or cultural reasons um i had my aunt is japanese and we would never touch mm -hmm. you know that's a very traditional japanese woman and at some point we started to kind of hug or kiss but we could feel in her that that was just really she did it because the dutch <laughs> wanted to do that but not necessarily because she yeah, wanted to do yeah. it so it's also like certain things are yeah so, so they're deeply ingrained in culture um so in that sense um for this particular so i've been studying and looking into touch of multiple works in relationship to materials i've created a film installation last year which hasn't been released yet where the dancers are manipulating charcoal beams so it's the kind of the ruins of society and then over the time over the course of the installation they become literally completely covered in charcoal mm. completely covered in charcoal wow. and it's it's a way to show the traces that we leave behind yeah. it's so so weird because we haven't released the work yet and now it's all about, it's almost <laughs> like all about corona um, um and then through touch i've developed a lot of partnering work mm -hmm. in dance a lot of part a, a, a lot of work that relates dealing with objects and it's a great medium for dancers and actors to meet each other because through touch you're 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 equal and then when you start to press or slide the touch through that you sense and you become creative as a performer and an actor will become creatively in a different way than a dancer mm. will. so it's a great mediator for them to meet yeah which of course is also very interesting now that we're working on this piece called touch in a time where touch is forbidden we are not allowed to touch um, however people can touch objects mm -hmm. so in that sense through mediums of the floor and the set pieces and costumes actually and props performers will be able to communicate something about their relationship to in this case, being deprived of mm -hmm. touch or feeling extremely in need for touch yeah. or having to open up and become hypersensitive in another way if you want to communicate and find trust when touch is no longer possible, then what do we develop? Because we can develop skills for that. Because mm -hmm. uh, as I know, there are societies where people don't touch each other very often and they are totally fine communicating yeah in other ways so it's an interesting topic and then the reason why touch became really or for me for one of the reasons why touch really became an an important part of this work is that in an early phase of this work we started to look into touch more in regards to sexuality and the aging body mm. so how with an aging society how do people continue intimacy and form and relate themselves to sexuality when society is from the outside telling us, you know, after a certain age, yeah. you basically don't exist anymore. <laughs> now, with an aging population, that will change. Mm -hmm. That image will change. And it's probably already changing as we're speaking. Um, but there's a lot of people who are touch-deprived. Um, and as we were researching the topic, 
uh, we realize that also very a lot of young people are touch deprived mm. because they don't communicate. Like dating doesn't happen anymore that you slowly, you know, touch the hands of your, the person next to you <laughs> that you are interested in. No, it goes over social media mm -hmm. and showing images of yourself. And so this kind of immediate physical contact is something that slowly becomes, yeah, it's slowly disappearing out of our society. And so at some point we were talking about, okay, what are the important topics in our time? And of course there's the, like the big topics of climate change mm -hmm. and um, dealing with our colonial past, um, uh, to name two very important big topics that are currently very, uh, the, the, um, the you know, movement to the right, like this yeah. fascism, neo-fascism that's coming to the fore. And they're all huge topics, but then on a, on a more human level, what are the topics that, that people deal with on a daily basis mm. and probably are not admitting it, but everyone is? Touch. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the topic. So I think in a conversation we brought that up. I think I even mentioned it. So like, touch is the most intimate issue for everyone mm. for everyone because we're not all affected by some yet of some of these big big issues we know that we have to take responsible <laughs> be responsible response able for it <laughs> um, but they're not necessarily affecting us right now and whereas touch is affecting everyone and we came up with this idea of before corona you know yeah so now it has another layer, but the layer is also really much more on a personal level. How do people feel that they're heard, being trusted, being valued, feel cared for, mm -hmm. feel that another person is ex like in like accepting their care? Um, and then, of course, the other side of touch is abuse. Yeah. You know, it's it's how women have been abused for I don't, I don't know for how long and that finally certain things after hashtag me too comes to a fore that it's a very deep issue in society yeah yeah and touch of course is very pleasurable and wonderful mm. yeah nana and i actually our research started with the word darkness but almost in the same breath, it was touch. <laughs> this was, um, of course, now we moved on to all of the senses, but we, we investigated touch deeply. And it was also many things that you mentioned that, that were the reasons why we were so intrigued by, by looking more at touch, into touch, um, how we touch, who touches, what does that mean, uh, direct and indirect touch and all of these uh, differences and also we kind of um, fabulated about uh, this dystopian future where where because of our lack of touch or decreasing touch touching um, with each other, at least in cultures where that is uh, very important, that sort of in the future, the, it would be a touchless society. Um, and what would that mean if we would be a touchless society? Of course, again, that was pre-corona and we had no idea that the, 
the far future that we kind of saw as a as a dystopic possibility, one of the dystopic possibilities um, of our current situation, we had no idea how quickly actually that would become a reality, and that something that yeah was such a an a question that was like okay, it's important to address it, and we really. Um, stuck with it but at the same time it was always this of course it's important now but it's also for the future and how can we prevent this dystopia and to to not even think of an outside factor something that is so unpredictable something that we could definitely not foresee that then brings us in the situation we hoped we wouldn't ever experience that's um Wow, that was really intense. And, and of course, by then we had already started thinking about all of the senses, but we just realized that it, it, the sense of touch, somehow we have a, a closer relationship to it, maybe because it is said that it's, it is so crucial for, um, for our survival, at least, or, or, or communication practices. But yeah, I don't know. It's, and probably you won't be able to do that work. Right. Well, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, we will. We we hope that um, just the same as as now in in the touch production, um, that there are ways to work around it, and yeah. then of course that, as we continue, um, there will be. We will address the the situation, and we yeah. will find ways to be safely allowed to touch each other again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but also for an audience to feel safe with yeah, that exactly because to have you know performer to performer consensus like this is okay is different than a stranger mm -hmm. who is then touched by a performer yeah. you know that's a whole other thing because that anyway without the layer of of the corona situation that is already so much more complicated and then adding that on top of it and also having now this sort of the need for for touch or the awareness that we 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 long for touch but at the same time the question mark every time someone gets close to you more than ever before because before it was oh maybe this is too intimate for me or yeah. i don't know this person it, what are their intentions now it goes beyond that which is wow it's literally safe yeah exactly the health yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. You'll work it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. But um, you mentioned um, counter technique before and I didn't really get into it and that was not because I'm not interested in it, but that was because I was waiting to ask you <laughs> a little bit later about, um, about it. And so I, I read um, from an interview um, about counter technique um, or yeah you mentioned that your experience showed that a dancer has to unlearn so many things in order to be able to move in multiple directions like having false, false assumptions about themselves fear or being over judgmental a lot of things that are basically in the way of just being here and I was wondering if you could elaborate on, on why it is important for 
for dancers or other movement practitioners to unlearn uh, certain habits and how you approach that? Um, yeah, um, I'm not sure if people have to unlearn habits, but to look into alternative ways of looking at how you look at your own body can help them become more positive and um, become more creative in problem solving. So that's how I see it, because unlearning, in the process they will, I guess, like, they will let go of certain things that they realize they don't need that anymore. The, why I don't necessarily like so much the word unlearning, did I mention that in that interview? Did I say unlearning? Um, let me go back. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, experience showed that a dancer has to unlearn Learn. so many things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say, yes, you can look at it that way, but mm -hmm. I would never work with them from mm -hmm. that perspective okay. because it means that they've invested all this time in something mm -hmm. and then until, and I will tell them, <laughs> it's bullshit, never mind, yeah. do something else. In the end, that's what happens, but that's probably, that's never the way in. It's yeah. always more about clarifying certain things and making sure that we're all on the same page so we all understand the same thing. Which then allows dancers to let go of certain preconceived understandings that they have or, or that they assume they understand certain things in a certain way because that's how it's been taught and everyone thinks they all understand each other but if you stop for a moment and go like okay what do we really mean here mm. nobody has a clue <laughs> <laughs> uh, and everyone will kind of admit like it's actually not really working for me uh -huh. but i'm trying really hard i've been trying for <laughs> 20 years really hard <laughs> and that's what i i experienced in the dance world now I think it comes from a much deeper thing that is that dance has a certain tradition how it's been taught and also comes from a certain system of hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, the, the idea of hierarchy, I guess, comes from the time of Louis XIV and this, the birth of ballet mm -hmm. and all that started to grow. And... Uh, <laughs> The idea of a center and a central focus was pivotal in that time. So ballets were organized around central figures. They were performed in front of the royals. Yeah. The whole way of how the, the gaze and the épaulement was behaving had to do with acknowledging the royalty in the theater. And through that, there was also a way to express, I'm not like the commoners, I'm mm -hmm. not like farmers. I have so much money that I can spend my time in looking into how graceful I can be. <laughs> um, and traditionally, there's a very strong master-student learning mm -hmm. because society is... These type of Western societies are built hierarchical. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking from a European Western society, mm -hmm. society perspective. I have some knowledge about that. I don't have knowledge about... I'm not an anthropologist, so I cannot really talk about other perspectives that per se. But from this white perspective, Western white perspective, 
um, the idea of the master student was definitely very much in place and therefore the master would show you you have to do it like this in dance and then the student would try to follow mm -hmm. and work and work and work until it would level the master and at some point the student had become a master and then yeah, the whole yeah, thing yeah. would start again the master and the student yeah uh, now i also know from a lot of asian cultures this is very much in place um the master student learning uh, so that also means there's right and wrong mm -hmm. and then the idea of control comes from the idea of a center in dance mm. so the center you have your center or you don't have your center again right or wrong so if all your training and all your idea of yourself has been formed by i'm right or wrong i have my control i don't have my control i have my center i don't have my center you have a very narrow view mm. of a limited view of how to problem solve because the only way how yeah, when something doesn't work you have to figure out how can i make it work so the only way how to make it work is trying to make it work yeah. there's no other strategies so all the learning in dance that happens or most learning that happens um, traditionally in dance is here's the dancer and then the instructor will tell the dancer you're here but you have to be here right so and then the pathway how to get there is something the student has to figure out mm -hmm. themselves now unfortunately this is not the only way that this also operates in a lot of forms that might not necessarily consider themselves traditional it's just the way how people try to pass on information so it could be, uh, your, you know, your turnout is here, but you have to be here. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out how to get there because it's not right. Or your ribs are sticking out, but your ribs shouldn't stick out. But it could also be like your weight stressed. You have to release because release is the most important thing to do. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that it's only based on form traditionally. Yeah. It, 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 you see it everywhere. So what happens is that dancers pick up very much on I'm here, but I have to be there. I feel this, but I should be feeling that. Mm -hmm. Now I hear it's right. Therefore, how I feel is probably right. Therefore, how I should remember how I feel at mm -hmm. this moment. So I store my feeling and my emotions and sensation or image or whatever the person is using on that moment, I store it together with the movement and then I try to reproduce. Mm -hmm. That unfortunately doesn't work because you can only experience something once. Yeah. <laughs> it's no other way. So what happens is a lot of dancers become extremely frustrated mm -hmm. because they felt really great on Monday, but now it's Thursday and they try to remember how they felt and they try to live how they felt on Monday, but it's not working because now it's Thursday. Mm -hmm. um, but they will still try to hold on how it felt on Monday or how they have seen others feel or mm -hmm. be or move or so it's and it's a system that might be partially in place because of the way how they've been taught choreography or dance or training, but it's also something that people take on as a way to learn, mm -hmm. as a way to learn. So if the system in place uh, offers you that way of learning, that's how you learn. So with counter technique, we broke that all down and said, okay, it's just not working. So there needs to be something else that is working. So if right and wrong doesn't work, because it just makes people absolutely insecure and frustrated, then let's stop thinking about right and wrong. It just mm. doesn't make sense. 
um, if uh, I have one day a great sense of control and center, but the next day I have my period and I feel absolutely discombobulated mm. that I have to perform in that evening, how do I do that? Yeah. If I actually don't feel good in myself, how do I do that? Can I then think about feeling good? Is that helping me? So um, I've tried many strategies and at some point I just couldn't figure it out anymore. It just didn't work. So I dropped the idea of control mm -hmm. from a central place because it just was not giving the answer. And then I said, okay, now let's look at two things. One thing moves away from something else. Um, what is that offering? Mm -hmm. And that was the solution. <laughs> I became the solution. So by now, actually now to go back to your question, so um, so in teaching counter technique to dancers globally, right? So from Russian dancers to Chinese dancers, American dancers, Australian dancers, multicultural European dancers, um, um, haven't worked with dancers in Africa. I've worked a little bit with dancers in the Middle East. I haven't worked with dancers in South America itself. Mm -hmm. I have worked with South American dance, but not in on the continent so i cannot completely talk about africa and south america but everywhere in the world dancers run into exactly the same problem and it doesn't matter if you're classically chinese trained or you were trained in um body mind centering in the mm -hmm. us or you're trained as a ballet dancer in russia dancers run into the same problems is, they run have the same problems have the same anxiety have the same fear and i think one of the the conclusions I was like that the central idea of either a core or a center or just a ground or a tanyem or something that people operate with are somehow, somehow not ideas that are very useful once it goes into movement because you have it or you don't have it. So mm -hmm. there lies the problem and then the fear comes in, the misunderstanding comes in, you hold on to the sensation or the image of what it is that you're doing, the sense in the muscles that you're doing. And you just get confused. So in account technique, we say, oh, it's much more simple. Two things move away from each other. You just have to figure out, do you understand what moves away from what? And then where? And then once you figure that out, you have more space in your body so you can actually do your work. That's account <laughs> technique in a nutshell. That sounds now super simple, but I also don't think that it's um, that simple. Well, so therefore you have to learn a lot of stuff. Yeah, so if exactly. You move, if you move, if you want to move your head and your sit bones away from each other, and you don't know what your head is, and you don't know where your sit bones mm. are, then you can try it as much as you mm -hmm. can, but it's actually not doing anything. Mm. If uh, you don't realize what needs to happen so a body part can move. The body part cannot move because everything in the body is interconnected and yeah. therefore the body part cannot move if you don't understand where something moves to and where it could move to but you pretend that you think you understand then it's not going to move there <laughs> it's actually that simple so in counter technique these ideas are being explained to people yeah um, and then through that people start to look at their own bodies and potential really differently and they mm -hmm. realize oh I have much more space in my hip joints than I thought I had. Oh, I'm not getting tired anymore. I thought I would get tired if we would do that. So these things then, so they become these new propositions that then take over from the old ideas that were more based on right or wrong, mm -hmm. fear and expectation, anxiety. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay. I, 
keep wondering about about um I mean the use of language I feel in in dance is um is also very particular right mm -hmm. I mean there's a particular language that you're taught uh, no matter w what type of dance it is and it becomes like a second language um and I was wondering if if you had to make changes in your vocabulary when creating a new um, methodology and if yes then how the vocabulary or the words changed also the movements oh they're interconnected <laughs> they're completely interconnected so i really believe it's a psychophysical system mm -hmm. a movement uh, how you communicate with your body it's psychophysical so if i think anuk you're a piece of shit today I will feel it in my body mm -hmm. and my body will behave that way. Um, if my body is in pain, it will affect me emotionally yes. you know, or psychologically. It will make me insecure or cautious or doubtful. Um, if somebody says to, you, to me, I know if you have a fat ass, you have to lose weight. <laughs> Let's say something like that. <laughs> the ass will grow in my mind bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it will be more difficult to lose weight and worse and weight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to give examples her, her, how um, images of yourself can, can, can deeply affect how you behave and move. So therefore, of course, there's, a lot of, there's been a lot of work done on, on positive imagery mm -hmm. to give people positive ideas about themselves and self-esteem. Uh, but the thing is with dancing, and you, it comes down to movement, if you bend your legs and you bend it from the wrong place in the body, you can image the hell out of it, but you will still bend your legs in the wrong way but mm -hmm. you, because the mechanics of your body haven't, haven't resu the, the misunderstanding in the mechanics in the body haven't been resolved. You might feel lighter for a moment, but the following day it starts all over again. You start with pain and then you have to con basically cheat and con mm -hmm. conv convince yourself you don't feel that way, you feel differently. Um, Yeah, so, so a lot of it is based in the language. So part of what I do with dancers when I teach kind of technique is that I, I will ask them questions and help them formulate things. Mm -hmm. So by hearing them speak, I understand how they think about their bodies because mm -hmm. they will use the language that is somehow in their system and therefore it affects how they move. Yeah. Uh, and then we can talk about the language and kind of re reframe the sentence in a way that we all understand the same thing and it's actually beneficial mm -hmm. and useful so part of the work that we do is just looking into language and seeing like well if turnout the word turnout didn't work for you let's look into how the body works and how we can make more mobility happening in the leg or in the arm whatever you want to want to move and that seems to be working most of the time for dancers yeah hmm. yeah Yeah, language is is fascinating. Um, just in the in the dance or movement world, but also in our everyday worlds. And uh, yeah, Nana and I are also <laughs> looking into how we can create a movement vocabulary, or in our case, a sensory movement vocabulary that that fits the practice that where people feel that they can communicate uh, much more precisely and then maybe also understand 
more precisely what what it is that they're sensing or yeah. how they are moving and but it's definitely a, a difficult task because language uh, on its own is so complex but i i think that still that what you mentioned i think that uh, is quite helpful in in the way also of, of just thinking about it and and then being aware of it in the first place i think that's that's already uh, yeah yeah i think it i guess it depends for whom you're developing a like like a, a practice right mm-hmm. if it's for performers or for an audience that might be completely different uh research um of what can they take on and what can they take on as, as information in the given time that you have to get yeah. um my experience with counter technique is that uh what happened is that as we were developing it we were evolving our awareness was growing and our the findings were growing and we became more precise and became more detailed and more and more and more and it's ongoing it doesn't mm-hmm. stop right because people keep discovering things yeah. and share with each other and we talk about it um but when we teach we have to go back to okay somebody doesn't have that kind of cognitive skill set mm-hmm. it's what i call the three-step logic there's three steps of awareness training that people need to do in order to be able to actively apply kind technique themselves mm. um, and in the way of speaking to the people you can either be in step one step two or in step three okay yeah yeah um and it's very interesting when the the younger teachers when they start to teach they want to teach the really advanced stuff because the advanced stuff is the cool stuff it's the stuff that makes all the difference it's the stuff that you go like oh my gosh if i'd learned that two years ago i would feel so much better however everyone will have to undergo the same kind of journey of discovering oh what is my body yeah where can this part move do i know what this part of my body is where can it move they have to do that same kind of discovery can I be, be aware of two parts in my body at the same time? Is that possible? Can I then switch? Why would I choose this part of my body moving away from that part of my body instead of this part away from that part? Mm-hmm. And if it's not working, what do I do? So they have to learn all these kind of strategies. Yeah. Really, that's the kind of what is happening. So in that sense, current technique has very evolved into this very multi-layered, complex uh, performance professional performers practice and that's also what i've developed it for however a lot of teachers teach also non-dancers and they want to mm-hmm. apply it and use with non-dancers so how can you change the wording and wrap and like package things in a way that it's more accessible for people so less theoretical or less like dry mm-hmm. um you know so people are experimenting and exploring that a little bit if that's at all possible mm. yeah. nice well (laughs) this was great so far and uh, this has been a really long day so um i would like to ask you one final question so we can wrap it up wrap it up and (laughs) call it a day um yeah something we're asking everybody is um what are their key values of their artistic practice and why do these matter in this case, to you or and um, to to the community. A very big question. <laughs> um, what do you mean with community? Mm. Who, who is the community? 
Well, I think that you can also maybe define that for yourself. The community could be the dance community or it could be a, 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 a smaller community. It could be a larger community. Um, that depends, of, of course, also on well, which aspect. Well, I'm in terms of choreographic practice, uh, <laughs> I have a concept called the reluctant boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> So the reluctant boyfriend concept, I mean, can also be a girlfriend or a person friend, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to be necessarily the boyfriend, but the reluctant boyfriend concept comes from that I'm always aware that people who would come see my work might bring someone who's not so mm. informed. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> so that not everyone will come to the show. So, so that as I'm creating shows, I want to make sure that I'm aware of these different types of engagement with people mm-hmm. um so you so you need to it's like the the, the pixel pixar uh, movie concept right so children movies from pixar have oh, yeah. these great layers in it that the, or that the parents have such a great time watching it because there's always <laughs> these gimmicks and fun stuff in for adults to discover yes. but there's also the layer that kids can follow so, so in that sense, uh, a, a work somehow needs to acknowledge that mm. or the music that's used for the work needs to be really interesting and intricate for, let's say, more the specialists. But it should also be accessible for people who don't have so much knowledge. Mm. Um, same thing with the performance. The performers have to have some kind of, they have, you have to want to like them, mm-hmm. I think in a way so there's that's a layer i think that's really important and then what they do or talk or communicate can be you know it can be more challenging how to figure out what's the logic here or how does the structure work or or what are what is how's the topic being addressed how is that unfolding you know that's more multiple layers but there needs to be some kind of sense that you you want to follow the performer And for everyone, not just for the for the geek in the audience. So I think that's that. I find it a really, really important thing to consider. And therefore, also sometimes a lot of stuff just drops out out of the work mm. because I feel it's too specialist. It's too, yeah. It's not accessible to to the audience that I'm making the work for. So I think that's that's kind of an important thing. And then. I think for performers, it's the agency to speak your mind hmm. in the work and through the work and in the rehearsal process and that it's okay to fail as we're making stuff and we don't have perfect, brilliant day, days of coming up with amazing stuff and that we're all humans. Then through that, that people feel the freedom to communicate through what they can offer. Hmm. So I find that really important self-agency and then the other thing that i like is the uh, collaborative anarchist (laughs) (laughs) which is a performer who's great in collaboration really good very skillful and working with others working with you know the director on the outside and the other colleagues on the inside but also has this personal agenda (laughs) and just will do like i'll say let's do this and this and this and that person does something completely different (laughs) and i go oh that's much more interesting yeah. That's much more, much more interesting. So, so people who can combine those yes. two things are mm. really great performers to work with because yeah. they have their own agenda and they should feel that they can 
can share that, mm. but they are also open to collaborate and understand, okay, today is not my day to be the, yes. the mm. diva. <laughs> I need to just get my shit together because I need, need to needs to see what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh wow. I, I um I just the first one um for me just makes me think of how I want to see art more accessible for everyone and mm. I feel that that that's exactly what you said mm. and then I think I think it's important we keep that in mind because yeah. it, it will sometimes work against like because you need to specialize and think and dig yes. and dig and dig and then of course the danger is that it will somehow become no longer accessible yeah. for people who don't have the same lens and the same kind of mm, exactly yeah like I on the work as you do um, and then on the, because you don't want to compromise but on the other hand you also need to find a way how can we make it that more people will like it than just my friends who like me anyway <laughs> you know yeah. Um, yeah so I think that's extremely important and also for the art form to survive mm-hmm. is a very important thing and I think it's totally possible people do amazing stuff that's super accessible for yeah. a lot of people it's very original and not at all you know um, cliche yeah. or, or something that's been done before easier said than done to make it but this kind of like not shying away from spectacle i would say that mm. something is for instance beautiful mm. beautiful to look at or beautiful to listen to or beautiful to experience there's a real big value in it and there's amazing artists like oliver Eliasson or people like that who manage to create this art practice that's absolutely stunningly beautiful but it also communicates on difficult issues mm. about society or about climate or the way we relate to one another but through this other lens so I think that's for me that's very inspiring when people manage to do that yeah and then how to do that through dance <laughs> I think it's totally possible but it's a journey yeah well thank you so very much this was super insightful and um gives uh <laughs> me also a lot to think about mm. uh, to reflect on which i think is uh, is one of the reasons why yeah. we're doing this yeah. and yeah i i'm but looking I mean, I mean, to give you like one advice you know you cannot take all that stuff on it's other people speaking yeah you'll go your own process and you'll make your own mistakes and get up again mm-hmm. like we all do yeah <laughs> i think this is um yeah, I, I love to end on that note, <laughs> making, using, listening to others and then still making your own journey. Yeah, I think, I think it will be more like you'll run into things that you think like, oh yeah, that person was talking about, oh, now I get it, mm-hmm. what that is about. Because you have, to, you have to be your own artist, so you have to do your own work in discovering things and running into things, yeah. Yeah, but testing is always a good one. If you're not sure, just test it and, and, and ask someone next to you, what do you think? What do you see? And, you, and then they'll say, well, and then you'll hear something completely different yeah. than you do. And you go like, oh, gosh, I didn't realize you could look at it that way. But mm. now I see it suddenly in a different way. Mm. So for that, it's never, it doesn't never harm to ask. Yeah. Well, thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. This was really great. You're welcome. <laughs> now let's